Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be together this morning. Um, how is everybody? Yeah? Did you sleep well last night? Yeah? Well, you slept like a baby? In other words, you uh, woke up crying for no reason multiple times? Um, or did something, uh, did something keep you awake last night? Like other nights, were you, uh, were you winning arguments in your head? I don't know if you do that. Were you brooding on some, some, some slight that you received from somebody and you just uh, have all the right answers in this argument that just sort of rolls around in your head as you're laying there not sleeping? I don't know if that was you or if that's you sometimes. Or maybe, uh, maybe worry keeps you up at night. You're imagining all of the worst possible scenarios and how you would somehow try to live through those worst possible scenarios, those worries and anxieties just have you laying there awake. Or maybe you just uh, you keep yourself up. <laughs> you're, you're not quite happy enough with the day, and so you try to expunge a little bit more happiness by staying up later and later and later, uh, doing more and more mindless entertainment, thinking somehow this will fill my happiness quota for the day, only to wake the next day all the more tired. Well, I don't know if you've thought about there is a connection between your sleep and your faith. Now, certainly there are many uh, physical causes of sleeplessness. If you're struggling with sleeplessness, you should ask yourself the good mom questions like, how much caffeine are you drinking? How's your alcohol intake? Are you exercising? How's your diet? All of that uh, and more. You have physical causes and things to consider. But I'd also challenge you to not underestimate the spiritual causes of sleeplessness. Today's two psalms, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, are in a really cool way a, a psalm of waking up for the morning in Psalm 3, and then a psalm of going to bed in the evening in Psalm 4. We see in Psalm 3 that David is acknowledging God's goodness to preserve him through the night. And then in Psalm 4, David is entrusting himself to the Lord as he goes to sleep. The main point of today's sermon looking at these two psalms is this. When you rise and when you sleep, trust God as your shield and savior, your rest and joy. When you rise and when you sleep, trust God as your shield and savior, your rest and joy. We remember where we've come from in, in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and remember that these psalms are put together intentionally in an inspired way, and so we gain helpful context from thinking about Psalm 1 being this uh, big picture, the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. Very clear moral categories, and it's good to be in the way of the righteous, of course. And then we saw Psalm 2. We saw the nations raging against God and his rule, and then God providing his king, his son, to uh, destroy the power of the nations. And so we were warned, kiss the son lest he be angry. With that epic backdrop, that big picture, we slide into Psalm 3, and it begins, Lord, how my foes increase. 
We're going to start off with uh, uh, tones that the, the psalm overall are much more familiar with that you probably are expecting when you read the psalms of a man who is living righteously in a difficult circumstance and wrestling with that honestly with the Lord. So let's read it. Psalm chapter 3. A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. We could uh, summarize with one statement this, this psalm this way. We could say, Wake up and trust your shield and Savior. Wake up and trust your shield and Savior for Psalm 3. I'm going to be walking through the psalms, these two psalms, and uh, take it a few verses at a time, and I'll give you a header for you to kind of uh, put a hook into, a header as we go through. So first we'll look at verses 1 through 4 under the header, the foes versus the shield. Verses 1 through 4, the foes versus the shield. You noted in the uh, superscript that this was a time when David fled from his son, Absalom. Uh, so we actually are given the historical context for this psalm, the psalm, the story in David's life uh, when this took place. And having just finished our series through 1 Samuel, uh, it's time to get a very quick overview of 2 Samuel. <laughs> uh, so where we left off in 1 Samuel when uh, uh, Saul died. In 2 Samuel, what we see is David becomes crowned as the king. He takes the throne and he receives from God in 2 Samuel 7 this amazing covenantal promise, a very important chapter in the Bible, a very important promise made to uh, David from God. But then soon after that, David sins in the, in the issue with Bathsheba, and then Nathan rebukes him, and then he repents of that sin. And then he has a son named Absalom who steals the hearts of the people against David. Absalom uh, uh, establishes a faction within the nation and actually leads a rebellious attack on David and Jerusalem and so David ends up having to flee his own palace, his own city, and is on the run with a smaller army than Absalom's, and he's left back being kind of like we saw him being uh, on the run from Saul. He's on the run with a weak force uh, from somebody who should have been his friend and instead is being his enemy, and he's crying out to God, and he's right when he says in verse 1, how my foes Increase. There are many who attack me. So that's the context that David is in. It is a 
hard, difficult situation. And he says in verse 2, you notice what he says. He says, many say about me, there is no help for him in God. See, with this rebellion against David, it's, it's against him as a person and as a king, obviously, but it's also against the Lord's anointed. It's the Lord who has chosen David for Israel. And then again and again, uh, we saw in 1 Samuel the importance that it was God who anointed David. And now, everyone who's on the rebellion side is ignoring that, is ignoring uh, that God is with David. And they're saying, ah, there's no help for David in God. There's nothing left there. There's, no, there's nothing special with David that we should not side with Absalom his rebelling son. So they're insulting David and they're insulting God. So that's the foes. And now let's look at the shield in verses three and four, the shield in three and four. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Yahweh is David's shield. God is, is, is protecting David, and David refers to him as a shield. It's a, a wonderful image. You get this picture of David surrounded by enemies, but a shield all around him between him and his enemies. David is not walking into a firefight with just the clothes on his back, but instead it's like he's walking, rolling into a firefight in an armored tank. He's got a shield around him. So God is David's shield, and we can draw encouragement for us as Christians around this because God is our shield as well. In fact, God has not sent us as Christians into the world uh, unprotected. He's not sent us into the firefight with just the T-shirt on our backs. Instead, he sent us with the full armor of God, right? Think uh, from Ephesians chapter 6, where it says, Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength, and we're given a shield of faith by which we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Friends, we have the world, we have Satan, we have our own flesh seeking to dissuade us from continuing to follow Christ, but we are not left unprotected. We have a shield of faith. The Lord stands in between us and our enemies. We can trust him. Hold on, grab on to that shield uh, of faith. Hold on to him. So David continues his note of confidence in God. He boldly asserts that God is his glory, the one who lifts up his head. He boldly asserts that God will answer him when he prays. This is a bold faith for David. It's not like a faith where he's testing the ice, putting one foot out and seeing if it's going to hold his weight. No, this is David going two feet in boldly and trusting himself to God. It's a good example of faith for us. Boldly entrust yourself to God. Two feet, jump right in, put your full weight on him. So having done that, what does David do next? Let's look at verses five and six. David says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. So the header for this would be the fear versus the sustainer. 
So David certainly has reason to fear. There's enemies on every side. The enemies are stronger than his forces. Of course he's got those reasons to fear. And yet, within that scenario, David testifies to the strangest thing. He slept and he woke up and God sustained him. (laughs) Awesome. Amidst this fear, he slept, he woke up, and God sustained him. So what what can we learn from David here? I don't see any armies surrounding us. Thankfully, there's nothing going on out in the parking lot that looks too uh, abnormal. But we have fears, don't we? We have our concerns, the things that are threatening us. So how do we apply this for us who are in Christ? What do we learn from this? Well, what David is doing in saying, I slept, I woke up, and the Lord sustained me, is he is acknowledging God's past sustenance. He's saying, God, I'm alive because you say I'm alive, because you made me be alive, because you sustained me. And so we can do that as a way of encouraging our own hearts, encouraging our faith in the Lord, is acknowledge God's past sustenance to you. So, hey, God has sustained your life, like physically. You are alive. Now, if anybody's like looking like they're not alive, maybe make sure they're not asleep uh, to make sure that that's still a true statement. But God is sustaining your life right now. You could have died last night while you were sleeping for any number of reasons, known or unknown, whatever. But God sustained you. That wasn't by your own strength. You weren't even conscious. (laughs) Like God sustained you and has kept you alive to this point. Praise him. That's a kindness of the Lord. And God sustains your faith. You woke up this morning and you continued to desire God. You continued to pray to him. You continued to be, want to be ministered to by the word. You came here and you, we sang these songs together that was God speaking to us. We heard God invite us to worship him from Isaiah chapter 6. Today, God is sustaining your faith. And we can boldly, comfort with such great comfort, say, he will hold me fast, right? That's a, that's a rock-solid promise. When we're in Christ, he won't let us go. So we praise him for that. So David is modeling for us this, this prayer in the morning, this prayer in the morning of acknowledging and thanking God for his sustenance. So may that be our morning prayer, morning by morning, praising God and thanking him for sustaining us uh, another day. So now we look to the close of the psalm in verse 8. The header here is the enemy versus the Lord, verses 7 and 8. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. So David turns to God and cries for help, for salvation. He boldly asks God to act for his good against his enemies. As the enemies are pursuing David, David is asking God to strike them on the cheek, strike them on the jaw, knock their teeth out. So what's up with this imagery? Uh, I mean, in some sense, you just picture a good punch to the face, right? That's what this is uh, describing But there's also some biblical imagery here that we can uh, reflect on. You see, you zoom way back in the Bible, Genesis 3. After uh, Adam and Eve sin against God with the deception of Satan, this snake in the garden, 
God makes a promise. That's an amazing promise. Way back at the very beginning of the storyline of the Bible that says, hey, uh, there will be a seed coming from this woman, some future descendant of Eve, who will have his heel bruised by the descendant of the snake. So the snake's going to, to, to bruise the heel of this uh, future descendant, this seed. And that man, that descendant, that seed is going to crush the serpent's head. So deal that decisive final blow against Satan. And all through the Old Testament, we read it with that question in our heads. Who's going to be the serpent slayer? Who's the one who's going to get bruised by the serpent but crush the serpent's head? And we even thought, uh, David and Goliath, when David uh, uh, takes down Goliath, who's in armor that's described as scales, and he uh, sinks the stone into his head and then cuts his head off, and you think, oh, is this the serpent slayer? Is this the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? And it's, it's not yet. It's just a picture. And here, David is asking the same thing. Who's going to crush the head of my enemies, of God's enemies? And David writes this, and then he dies, and then this is added to the Psalter as the question ringing in the air. Who is the serpent slayer? And now we know, having seen Jesus come, having seen Jesus die on the cross, receiving a bruised heel, in a sense, and then resurrect, and de dealing that decisive final head-crushing blow to our enemy, Satan, defeating sin and death. Jesus is the serpent slayer. The question for you is, will you bow your knee to King Jesus? Will you take the side of the serpent or will you take the side of the serpent slayer? Will you kiss his ring? Will you seek to find your rest, not in your own works, but in him? So friends, if you are not on the side of God, then you are in grave danger, but you can be on the side of God through Christ today. Look to Jesus for your rest. With rest, the rest of Jesus ringing in our hearts, we turn now to Psalm chapter 4 to continue reflecting on Jesus, our rest. So Psalm 4, main topic sentence could be sleep and trust your rest and joy. Psalm 4, we see in verse 1, Answer me when I call, God who vindicates me. You free me from my affliction. You freed me from my affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So with that kind of introductory verse to the psalm, what's happening is he's almost like, it's not necessarily the same day, but it's like it's the same day. It's like, hey, you heard my prayer. You saved me. Uh, you freed me from this affliction, and now I have like my evening concerns and prayers and, and, and burdens that I'm praying to him, particularly, introduced in this verse, a desire to be vindicated. So uh, David is praying this, in a sense, in the evening, and the first five verses header would be the unrest of vengeance versus the peace of vindication. So look at verse 2. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? So these exalted ones, 
are men who have some sort of status who are um, insulting David's honor. Now, we look back at 3, verse 3, and we see that God is David's glory, David's honor. So they're insulting David. They're insulting David's God. They're insulting his, his honor. And David is asking, well, how long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? You see, as David is suffering, whatever the suffering might be at this instance in his life, as he is suffering, it begs the question, well, is God really on David's side after all? Is he really God's righteous anointed one after all? Or is this just a fake? Is this evidence in his life of suffering proving uh, that his detractors are, are right and that he is wrong. And so with that scenario, David has this desire to be proven right, to be shown to be in the right, to, for, for God to show himself to be, uh, ha- that he has indeed chosen David for this purpose. They're insulting David and they're insulting God. And then he says in verse 3, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself, The Lord will hear when I call to him. So he's speaking this almost to his accusers and kind of to himself as well, I think. I think it's like a a way that he is encouraging himself by responding to his accusers saying, the Lord has set apart his faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. And then he continues in verses four and five. Be angry and do not sin. On your bed, reflect in your hearts and be still. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust the Lord. So as he's facing these accusations, falsely, sinfully made against himself, there is a, uh, a natural desire for his enemies to be proven wrong. And with that, you can only imagine there's a temptation for vengeance, temptation uh, to take that justice into his own hands. There's a temptation for anger to rule his heart, a temptation to not lie down and rest, a t- temptation to not entrust his vindication to God. So that's David's scenario, and he says, be angry and do not sin on your bed, reflect in your hearts, and be still. So he's saying that to his enemies, he's saying that to his own heart. And interestingly, Paul, in Ephesians 4, quotes this verse. And he quotes this and draws a really helpful implication or application from on your bed, reflect in your heart, and be still. This is what Paul says. He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. In other words, don't go to sleep without reflecting on your heart on your anger. Don't uh, sleep, don't let the sun go down, don't... Don't, as you lie in your bed and be still, it's like, hey, don't end the day without doing the work of examining your heart and asking, are you right to be angry? It's kind of odd, right, that oftentimes we lie awake because we are angry <laughs> in a way that we are not examining our hearts and just letting our anger run, and that keeps us awake. When the command is, hey, don't go to sleep until you deal with what's going on in your heart and, and consider uh, uh, in your heart this anger. I think you all, I think we all, <laughs> have seen what happens when we don't deal with our anger, right? Not considered, not pondered in our hearts. Instead, if we let our anger fester and grow, 
it gives the devil an opportunity, just as Paul says. It gives him a foothold into opening up a whole realm of temptations that wouldn't have been there if we didn't let that anger fester and grow in our heart. By letting that grow, we're opening ourselves to a myriad of temptations. You know, I think there's some misconceptions about anger in our culture that if you stop and examine them, you kind of scratch your head. Like, so there's, there's, there's figures of speech of saying, I'm just blowing off steam, or a figure of speech of saying, I'm just venting when you're communicating your anger to somebody. And so it's like, what those figures of speech are uh, picturing, I guess, is that you're some sort of contraption that is filling up with pressurized steam, and you need some sort of way of like a controlled release of the steam uh, in the form of you expressing your anger verbally to the person not you're angry at. The question is, is that true? Are you, is, that, is that a good metaphor for what you are like and what anger is like within your heart? And we're given pause when we read Proverbs 29.11, which says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person holds it in check. That gives us pause of this whole venting analogy as the way that we think anger should work in our hearts. Because I do think that when we give ourselves over to verbally expressing our anger and just saying that that's fine, often what we're doing is it's more like we're working out our anger muscle. We're exercising our anger muscle. And after we do that exercise, our anger muscle feels tired. But it's just getting stronger for the next time you're provoked and there's a temptation to be angry and then, and then that uh, muscle's going to be all that stronger to hit a little bit harder the next time. Brothers and sisters, we have a strong warning in this passage. Be angry and do not sin. David and Paul are acknowledging anger. So we can acknowledge anger as well. We can, we can, we can name it, but we need to be uh, uh, careful about it. Don't run around un- with your anger unexamined and unchecked. So let's consider with each other how we can help provoke one another to better uh, godliness in dealing with our anger and not sinning in our anger. So having addressed his accusers and having addressed uh, his own response in a provoking kind of situation, David kind of turns and asks a question that maybe his readers are asking in verses 6 and 7. So the header here, the unrest of envy versus the joy of the Lord Verses 6 and 7. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. So when this question is asked, many are asking, uh, who can show us anything good? I don't think this is like a, a question asked in faith. I think this is more like a, what have you done for us lately, David? What have you done for us lately, God, who can show us anything good? Well, the answer from David here is actually very gracious. <laughs> it's actually very uh, kind because he says, let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. He's evoking the, the, the blessing given by Aaron. Let the light of your face shine on us. It's not me who's going to show you guys something good. But if any good's going to come from me, it's going to be through God shining through me. But hey, let the, the, the goodness of God shine on us. 
He's inviting God to do that. And then he gives a testimony in verse 7. Everybody's wondering, who can show us anything good? It's not that good what we're getting from God. But David says this. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. What a verse, isn't it? To be able to say, for David to be able to say, hey, I have more joy from God than I have from, from, from the wicked when their grain and wine abound, when they have all the prosperity. I have more joy in the Lord from him himself than all this prosperity. Christian, is this true of you? Can you say with David, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound? When you look at those who are not Christians who are uh, wealthy or who have a nice family or who have a good job or who have any like worldly thing that you think is great, do you look at them with envy? Is envy uh, fill your heart towards uh, those earthly kinds of blessings, even for non-Christians? When what we should feel in that scenario is not envy, but pity, right? Think about the, the sadness of not knowing the Lord. Think about the, the pitiable state of an eternity, not with Christ in heaven, but eternity separated from God in hell. That's the fate of the non-Christian without intervention. And so we, as we look out, are crazy to think uh, envious of the wicked as they are prospering. It ought to be pitiable love, mercy. That's our, our, our heart, our motive towards those uh, who are prospering. And in doing that, we are not letting them steal our joy. We're not letting our envy steal our joy in the Lord. I don't know if you know this, but your joy is a very serious thing. Your joy in the Lord is of a great importance for your sustenance in continuing to walk with the Lord. Think about this. What if David were to say, how, how much glory would this give to the Lord? If David were to say, uh, God, you have put some joy in my heart, but they've given me more joy when their grain and wine abound. What a difference, right? What a little God that is to think, God, yeah, he gives me some joy. But really the joy I'm after is the joy that comes from grain and wine. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's what brings him the most glory. Because he's that good. We have a relationship with him. And so he is that good that he gives us all the joy we need. He gets more glory when we are happy than him, when, than when we put on some fake face of dour grumpiness. No, he, he, has, uh, uh, he is glorified by our joy in him. There's, uh, there's, there's, there's much here to, to explore all through Scripture. In the, the ministry of John Piper, he makes a whole ministry around that sentence. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful truth that we can uh, reflect on for a long time. If this is something you need to reflect on, I'm going to take your joy and, 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 and hold on to it. Here are three ideas, three steps. One, 
was what I said. Take your joy seriously. God's glory is at stake. And think about when you are unjoyful in God, when there is no joy for you in your relationship with the Lord, what temptations are you opening yourself up to? If you're letting that envy invade your joy, then what sins are going to be more alluring than if you are deeply and fully joyful and satisfied in God, then those sins are not going to be alluring. So take your joy seriously because God's glory is at stake and because uh, your, your righteousness is at stake. And then two, fight for your joy in the Lord every morning and every evening. Just like David is doing, morning and evening prayer here. It is a, a wonderful habit that many of you have, a wonderful habit where you wake up and in the morning you open the Bible and you read it and you pray to the Lord. That's a wonderful thing to do. Here's a way to think about that, just a way to like conceptualize what it is that we do as Christians when we are just opening God's word and praying to him. What we're doing is we're fighting for our joy again. Hey, my joy in the Lord wore off sometime in the night. And my heart is not warm to him. But when I open the word, I want to read it until I'm, I'm warm again to the Lord. Until I have that joy in him, I'm thankful again for my salvation. I see him again clearly. And whatever truth comes out in that passage, that can warm my heart again. So think of that, that work of, hey, every morning, every evening, fight and regain your joy in the Lord. Third, third idea here is, is a question. Is there entertainment or leisure in your life that is damaging your joy in the Lord? Is there leisure, entertainment, optional stuff in your life that's damaging your joy in the Lord? Now, I don't ask that as if the answer is necessarily yes. Because listen, part of God's good gifts to us include leisure and entertainment, like this kind of rest, those things that are restful to us. They are part of God's good gifts to us. The question is, are we enjoying them as means of escape or are we enjoying them as means of resting in God? Here's a diagnostic question. Before you do something that's like, whatever, restful or watch a show or whatever it is, like before you do that, can you ask, can you, can you pray, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to do this thing? And then afterwards, can you say, thank you, Lord, for that gift? If in your heart you can do that, then hey, that, that, that entertainment, whatever, actually drew you closer to him. But if, there's, if you're going to that entertainment uh, for something different, then you're not going to be able to pray that prayer. I get that from 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, which says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Received with thanksgiving. Uh, man, it's sanctified with the word of God and prayer. So those entertainment things in your life, consider them. Uh, some of them might be stealing your joy. But consider them, they might be, you, you might need to be, be uh, uh, girding up to be able to enjoy those as a good gift from the Lord, and they will uh, increase your joy in the Lord if you do it right. You know, Faith Church has the potential to be a church that is marked by joy in the Lord. We have that potential because we have the Lord, right? We can be a community of saints who are devoted to enjoying God together. May that mark us. May that be a, a, a character trait of faith, church, of a people who are visibly joyful in the Lord through sins and sorrows, through trials and temptations, that our joy in the Lord remains steadfast. So 
Having expressed his joy in the Lord, now David will turn to his sleep. Final verse, verse 8, the unrest of fear versus the sleep in God's safety. Verse 8, I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. David can end his day by entrusting himself to God. The fears and the foes and the, the, the threats remain, but David knows that God is his shield. David knows that God is a shield around him in between he and his enemies. And having brought his cares and concerns before God, having wrestled down his anger that could be in his heart, having uh, uh, squelched any thought of envy that is in his heart, he is entrusting himself to God for vindication and joy and safety. And David sleeps. David sleeps entrusting himself to God. Can you entrust yourself to God and lay down and sleep? to be completely vulnerable, to completely unconscious, just to be able to, to, to put your head down and entrust your future to your loving God, your shield. You know, the Christian, night after night after night, lays his head down and he goes to bed with this verse, I will both lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. Night after night after night, the Christian prays that prayer and sleeps and wakes and sleeps and wakes, and God is good through it all. And one day, you will lie down, not on just your bed, but on your deathbed. And on that day, you will be able to pray, I will both lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. And in the resurrection, you will indeed dwell with your God, who will indeed be your shield, and you will arise in his grace. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on this passage. <laughs>